I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. We're going to be reading uh, just verses 13 through 15. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1199. Uh, Pastor Bruce is continuing in his series on James, and he's talking about uh, temptation under trial. Again, this is James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's pray. Father God, we just uh, thank you again for who you are. We come to you in Jesus' name. Thank you that we can do that. And we thank you that you, um, you've made a way for us to have a relationship with you. And that you didn't just uh, spin the world to existence and leave us alone. But you gave us instruction on how to live and gave us insight as, as to who, you're, who you are and what you're like and how we are to relate to you. And Father God, I just pray that you would be with Bruce this morning and, and speak through him. Help us to hear, uh, help us to understand fully. And then God, help us to, um, to apply through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you for all that you've done. We look forward with anticipation to seeing what you will do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The poet and playwright Oscar Wilde once jokingly remarked that I can resist everything except temptation. We might chuckle a little bit at that, even smile when we hear that remark because it describes an important truth about our own human condition. Temptation seems to pay a visit to each of us if not weekly, every day, and most of us, if we are honest, we struggle to say no to that temptation. Now, if you're new here to LifeBridge or you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we are studying the book of James, and we're going through that book, and so far we have learned that James is a book that's all about encouraging Christ followers, encouraging Christians to live out real faith in real life, even when we find ourselves in the trials of life. Chapter 1 seems to focus on the trials of life. And so in this first chapter, James is reminding us that, that when it comes to those trials of life, God is using them, He is sovereign over them, and He intends to use those trials for our good in His glory. But, but we have a responsibility to play in that. We James calls us, we need to remain steadfast in those trials. And that's why, as we have seen already, we need God's wisdom in trials. And we also need God's perspective in those trials. But James also knows something about the trials of life. And that is, they do not come in isolation. Rather, they come with temptations of various kinds. Temptation to doubt God's love, temptation to despair, temptation to sin, in all sorts of ways that we might think makes the trials a little easier to cope with, a little less painful to deal with. 
We may even think if we just give in to this one little sin, then maybe we can get out of this trial altogether. And so James understands something about us here this morning. He understands a universal truth when it comes to the trials of life. And this is what he understands. This is what he's telling us. It's the big idea of these verses here. You see this in your notes that trials around us can prompt temptations within us. Therefore, we need to learn to discern these temptations by recognizing the source, the force, and the course of those temptations. James wants us, in other words, to, as we have already said, to live out real faith in real life. And so he's now warning us about the temptations that come in the trials of life. He's already acknowledged, he's already told us that that God will test the faith of his people. And God will test us for our own good and for his glory, but we must learn to discern those temptations for our good and God's glory as well. Again, James knows that every trial we face in life, it brings temptation with it. And when we face financial difficulty, we we might be tempted to distrust God's provision in our lives. When we encounter sudden loss, we're we're tempted to question God's love. When we experience unjust suffering, we're tempted to doubt God's justice. And so we need to discern these temptations. How? Well, James wants us to discern them by recognizing something about the temptation. He wants us to recognize the source of it, the force of it, and the course of that temptation. And so immediately you begin to understand here, James is not, he's not telling us necessarily how to overcome temptations. He's not even going into telling us how to resist temptation. He's wanting us to understand something about the temptations. He wants us to see the temptations for what they are, and he wants us to learn to discern the temptations, especially when it comes in the context of trials of life. Now, there's this relationship, therefore, between trials and temptations. James has drawn this relationship for us. There's there's a connection, in other words, between the trials you face in life and the temptations you often encounter in those trials. And what is that connection? What's the relationship? Notice this. A trial is what I experience on the outside of my life. And a temptation is what I experience on the inside while going through that trial. Now, that doesn't mean that we only experience temptation in the trials of life. It's just that in James chapter 1, the theme of chapter 1 is the trials of life. And so James is focusing on the temptations that come in the trials of life. And so far, James has been concerned with how we respond to those trials around us. Now he turns his attention to what goes on within us during such times. In fact, the Greek word here in verse 12 for trial is the exact same word translated in verse 13 as tempted. And so immediately we see the two go hand hand in hand. They go together. For example... When God tested Israel in the wilderness after he brought them out of Egypt, it was an opportunity in that test for the children of Israel to trust God and to obey God. 
In fact, God even tells Moses in Exodus 16.4, in this way I will test and see whether they will follow my instructions. But instead of using the testing as an opportunity in their life to, to trust God and to obey God, the children of Israel turned it into an occasion for sin by grumbling against God. And so just like with the children of Israel in the wilderness, listen, the trials around us that come can prompt all manner of temptation within us. And James wants to help us to learn to discern those temptations. He wants us to see them for what they are and to resist them when they come along. Now, before we go any further, we, we might should stop here and just answer a simple question, and that is, well, what is temptation after all? We're familiar with that term. I think most of us know what it is, but let me give you a simple definition of temptation. Temptation is really, it's nothing more than an invitation or solicitation to sin, to disobey God, to, to go against his will as revealed in his word. And so what that means is that the great danger for Christ followers now is not so much the trials that God uses for our good, but rather the temptation to sin that accompanies those trials. So allow me to state the obvious. You will never remain steadfast in the trials of life if you don't learn to discern the temptations that come along with those trials. You say, how do we do that? How do we learn to discern temptations? James shows us here that it begins by recognizing its source, its force, and its course. So let's look at that. Number one, recognize its source, where temptation comes from. James begins this discussion by assuming that you will face temptation. He says in verse 13, look at it with me in your Bibles, let no one say when he is tempted. So he does not say, now if you happen to be tempted. Why? Because just as James has already told us earlier on in verse 2, that everyone faces the trials of life, everyone's going to face temptations in life. And so James expects temptations to be a, a normal part of the Christian life, just as trials are a normal part of the Christian life. And Oswald Chambers reminds us that temptation in itself is not a sin. He goes on, he says, it is something we are bound to face simply by virtue of being a human being. John White adds this. He says, you will be tempted. You will be tempted continuously. You will be tempted ferociously at times of crisis. As long as you live, you will be tempted. And the question becomes, well, where does that temptation come from? Well, James does not leave us guessing. He does not leave us pondering or assuming where temptation comes from. He actually tells us its source. James says in verse 13, look at it with me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And then in verse 14, James holds up a mirror to us, and he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so immediately in these two verses here, 13 and 14, we see the source of our temptation. And first of all, James tells us that temptation, it never comes from God. Temptation never comes from God. 
So know this. God may test us, and he does, but God does not, and he cannot, and he will not tempt us to sin. And so when James says God cannot be tempted with evil, it literally means that God is untemptable. That is, sin holds no attraction to God like it does to us. There's no possibility of God even being remotely enticed to sin like we are. Now, why? Why is it impossible for God to tempt us to sin? Well, James grounds that on the character of God. In other words, he grounds that in the very nature of God, who God is. And God is utterly pure. He's he is holy, and we know from Isaiah, he is holy, 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 three times holy. Robert Johnston gives this answer. A tempter to sin must be himself sinful, open to the seductions of evil. Now God cannot thus be tempted. His absolute blessedness, his infinite holiness, removed him wholly from liability to temptation, and thus, from his very nature, he cannot be tempted to sin. In other words, everything about God, everything in God resists sin. In fact, we know from Scripture God hates sin. Evil itself is inherently foreign to him. Oh, God is aware of evil in this world. That's why he sent his son to die for our sins. He is fully aware of evil and sin in the world, but he is untouched by that evil and sin. And because that is true, we can be sure that God is not trying to trip us up with temptation. We can be confident that God is not looking for inventive ways to tempt us to sin. Listen, God never solicits anyone to do what is morally wrong, to do what is opposite or contrary to his revealed will according to his word. So if God, as James says, is not responsible for our temptations, well, who is responsible? Well, James, again, doesn't leave us guessing. He actually tells us. And that is, number two, temptation comes from our own sinful desires. We see this in verse 14, where James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see, the uncomfortable truth here is the source of our temptation is our desires. And because we still have a human nature, a fallen sinful nature, most of our desires are sinful. So temptation comes from our own sinful desires, which means that the problem is within us. It is not outside of us, but buried within our innermost beings. James is making it explicitly clear here that our sinful desires are the source of temptation. Now, the overwhelming impulse that we feel when we experience a temptation is to immediately look outside of ourselves. And even to ask such things, what is happening to me? Who is doing this to me? Why am I so enticed by this? But James says to us, no, don't look outside of yourself, look inside. 
Look inside. You, James says, are the source of your temptation. That also means that the responsibility for temptation lies squarely with us. Now, may God help us here understand this truth in a world where there are efforts everywhere we turn to excuse us from our own responsibility for sin. Our culture teaches us to to put the fault on others. Our culture teaches us. In fact, it encourages us to blame our upbringing, to blame our friends, to blame our family, to blame our government, to blame our condition, to blame anything else that we can think of. Now, that does not mean that different factors don't affect us in different ways, but James is clear here on this point. The fault for my sin lies with me. Period. Now, our reflex is to play the blame game. And so James cautions us here against blame shifting when he says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So don't play the blame game. Don't blame God for your temptations. James is telling us that we are responsible in our temptations. James is saying, my sin is my fault. And yet we know, we know from experience even, our own experience, that we are masters of playing the blame game. In fact, as soon as we sin, it is everybody's fault but our own. That is our reflex. Now, that isn't anything new, and it should not surprise us. The blame game started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And when God held them responsible for that and held them accountable for that, what did Adam do? Well, he immediately blamed Eve, and what did Eve do? She immediately blamed the serpent, and in doing so, they both were blaming God. Now, even today, we still play the blame game. Today, we still carry on the tradition of our first parents, and we do it often in subtle ways. We will say things like, it must be God's will, or he would not have let that happen. Or God has allowed me to be in this situation when he could have stopped it if he had wanted me to. But James will have none of those excuses. James is saying, listen, we are responsible in our temptations. My sin is my fault, so do not blame God. In fact, what James is saying here is actually much, much stronger than our English Bibles convey. It's almost as if James is saying in the literal Greek language here, it's something like this, it's this strong. God, I mean, don't even remotely suggest that God has anything to do with your temptations. Don't even let it begin to come out of your mouth. Don't even thank it. Because when we play the blame game, what we are doing is we are ultimately blaming God for our temptation to sin. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, well, well, I've never accused God of tempting me to sin. Well, maybe you have, and you just don't realize it. Because if you've ever said to yourself, if I just had a little more understanding husband, I wouldn't be so irritable. If you've thought to yourself, if my children were just a little more compliant, I'd be such a happy person. 
maybe you thought to yourself, if my neighbors weren't so hard to get along with, if my boss wasn't so unrelenting, if I wasn't in such a tough financial situation, in other words, what we are doing there, we are looking outside of ourselves. And if you look outside of yourself, if you are pointing to others, if you are pointing to your circumstances, you are ultimately blaming God for your sin. It's God's fault for giving me that husband. It's God's fault for giving me those kids. It's God's fault for for letting me grow up in that home. It's God's fault for giving me a short fuse to where my anger blows its top. It's God's fault for not giving me enough money. It's God's fault for giving me such strong hormones that I can't control myself with whoever. And so the question that we need to ponder here this morning is, are there ways in our lives, perhaps even subtle ways, where you and I are pointing the finger at God and we are blaming him for our sin. James is adamant here. He says, don't blame God for your temptations. Why? Because God never tempts you to sin. So when we do give in to temptation, we have no one to blame but ourselves. No one. Not God, not the devil, not your parents, not your friends, not your environment, not the government. We, James says, our own sinful desires are the source of temptation. Therefore, we are responsible in our temptations. So the first key to learning to discern temptation is to recognize its source, where temptation comes from. The second key is to recognize, number two, its force. That is how temptation works, how it works. Now, in case you haven't figured it out yet, sin does not just happen out of the blue. Sin does not occur in a vacuum. There is a force at work in temptation, and we need to recognize, we need to discern this force in order to resist it. Look again what James says in verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when, notice what he says next, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So the source of our temptation is our desire. But where does that desire dwell? And why do we give in to our desire to sin? Well, James explains it here. First of all, the desire to sin dwells within our hearts. Scripture teaches that the heart is the control center of human beings. The heart is the the fundamental core of your personhood. And what that means is this. What rules your heart will control your words and actions. So that means sin is always a heart problem. It's not just a behavioral problem. So on a little side note here, parents, if I can encourage you, this is why it's important that we don't just correct behavior issues with our children but we learn to parent the heart of our children. Why? Because the heart is where all this takes place. The behavior is just the outside where we see it. So learn to discern the heart of your children instead of always and only correcting behavior. So John Calvin says it this way. 
that there is in us the root of our own destruction. He's alluding to the heart. And if we ignore the danger within or think that it's been eradicated, we are in a most precarious position. So sin, in other words, it always starts with a desire, and that desire dwells within our hearts. Now, does that mean all of our desires are sinful? Well, no, of course not. Not all desires are sinful. Listen, most of our desires are God-given desires. Right? And God-given desires are not evil or sinful in and of themselves. For example, the desire for food is a good thing, right? A desire for sleep is a worthy thing. A desire for companionship, a desire for intimacy. Those are all God-given, and those are worthy desires. The problem comes, these desires become sinful when we seek to satisfy them in sinful ways outside of God's will as revealed to us by His Word. So when we sin, our desire to worship God then is redirected towards another competing desire, and that desire now ascends the throne of our hearts, and we begin to worship that desire rather than God. So one way for us to figure out what's dwelling within my heart is to ask ourselves this question. What is it that I am wanting so bad in life that I just have to have it and I'm willing to sin to get it? What is it that I want so bad that I, quote, have to have it and I'm willing to do anything to get it, even if it means sin. And sin as defined by God's word, not by our imaginations. That's a good question to ask. Paul Tripp put it this way. It's only the evil inside of you that hooks you to the evil outside of you. So the desire to sin, where does it dwell? It dwells within our hearts. And now James tells us something else about this desire, that the deception of sin is powerfully enticing. That's why we have a hard time resisting. It is powerfully enticing, this deception of sin. In fact, our desires get derailed through deception. And so here's what happens in a temptation, is that we are, to use the word to James, we are lured and we are enticed by our own desires, he says. And you might immediately begin to see a, a fishing metaphor in this, or, or even a hunting metaphor. I, I like the fishing metaphor a little better that James is using here to describe the powerful deception of sin on our lives. In fact, the word lured, it actually means to be dragged away. And this word enticed, it, it means to set a trap for. And so James is now describing someone being dragged away and falling into the trap of sin. And why do we fall into temptation's trap? We'll go back to the fishing metaphor that James is using. Now, I have to admit, I am not much of a fisherman. But I do know that when you fish, you need to bait the hook, right? Got to bait the hook. Why? Because no fish in their right mind knowingly bites an empty hook. 
So you got to hide the hook if you want to catch fish. So before you drop the line into the water, you cover that hook with bait. So the fish sees the bait as something it needs, like food, and goes after it, seeking satisfaction for his hunger. And of course, when the fish bites the bait, what do we do? We jerk the pole and we snag him. We lift him out of the water where he dies and then fries so that we can eat him. It's the same way in our, with sin in our lives. That sin that is so enticing, it looks like something we so desperately need to satisfy our desires, and it is powerfully enticing. In fact, have you noticed that sin never hangs a banner above it that says, this is dangerous to you. Temptation never says, with a loud horn into your ear, don't do this. This it will not end well for you. This will damage your relationships. This will disgrace the name of God. Sin and temptation never does that. In fact, no temptation, it sounds more like this. When we enter temptation, when we come to it, temptation sounds like this will be fun. This won't hurt. You deserve this. You deserve to be happy in life. No one will ever know. So go ahead. What big, what's the big deal? Oh, the deception of sin. It is powerfully enticing. In fact, this kind of deception, it drives men to pornography. It drives women into the arms of other men. It drives employees to dishonesty. It drives people to a number of other sins. Our desires are deceptive, and it's important to discern that our desires are the thing that, that pulls us in. In fact, this is why the word for desire here in some of your Bibles might be translated as lust. Depending on what version Bible you have, desire, lust. That passionate longing for sin that we sometimes experience. But listen to me, if you are here and you are born again through your faith in Jesus Christ, that means by the Spirit of God, you have a new nature with new desires, and that means you have the power of God's Spirit to help us to resist the desires of the flesh. This is why Paul writes what he does in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, but I, walk, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and as believers in Christ, that Spirit dwells within us now, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In fact, again, some of your Bibles translate that word desire as lust. And you will not gratify the lust of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So what happens when we give in, though, to these desires of the flesh or these lusts of the flesh James tells us exactly what happens when we don't resist temptation. You see, James not only wants us to, to recognize the source of temptation and the force of temptation, he also wants us to recognize the course of temptation, where temptation leads. Now, if you're wondering, and by the way, we've all wondered this. I've even wondered man, what's the big deal with giving into a little temptation? I'm sure you guys have wondered that, right? 
Who here has not wondered that? What's the big deal with giving in to just a little bit of temptation? Well, James answers us. He tells us why it's a big deal here in verse 15. Look at it. He says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, James is shifting the metaphor here from fishing to giving birth. Now, the birth of a baby is normally an occasion for great joy, is it not? When somebody is pregnant and they give birth, it's a great occasion. It's an occasion for great celebration and joy with your family and with your friends, but not here. Not this birth. Our sinful desire, listen, when it is fed, when it is nurtured in our hearts and minds, it inevitably gives birth to sinful disobedience. And so what James is doing here is he is personifying sin for us. And he says in that personification that temptation and desire come together to to conceive and to give birth to sin. In other words, James is making it crystal clear that it does not give birth to happiness. It does not give birth to satisfaction like we think it's going to. It doesn't give birth to to pleasure or prestige or power like we hope it would. James says it gives birth to sin when temptation and our desires come together and we don't stop the course of it. And once sin is born, listen, it does what babies do. And what do babies do? They grow. They eat. They grow up. They grow stronger. And they become parents too. And the name of its child here is death. And so just as surely as a physical conception leads to birth, this kind of conception, James says, gives birth to death. And it is a horrifying image. It is a heartbreaking image to think about. Think about a mom who gives birth to a stillborn baby. It is sad. It is heartbreaking. It is horrifying. When that baby comes out and it is stillborn. No life. Dead. James wants us to dwell on that image when it comes to sin here. Here's the temptation course of our temptation. It starts with desire. Notice this in your notes. It results in disobedience and it ends in death. You see, we like to think that giving the sin is just a way of getting it out of our system. That if we just indulge in it a little bit, it'll go away and somehow it will leave us alone. But James is showing us just how mistaken that thinking is. In fact, James is telling us here that acting on sin is never the end of it. It takes on a life of its own. Understand something here. Once sin is born, it grows and it grows and it grows until it reaches the point where we can no longer control it. In the beginning, we think we can. But it comes to a point where you can't. 
Sin does not stop where you want it to stop. It does not stop where you plan for it to stop. Sin keeps taking you further and further and further down the road until we find ourselves doing things we never would have ever imagined. But that's never the end of it. Once sin is full grown, James tells us that it brings forth what? Death. This has always been the case. God has always been forthright with his creation here, his people, in telling them this specific truth about sin. You go back to the Garden of Eden, and God warned Adam and Eve ahead of time that their sinful disobedience, their willful rebellion would mean, according to Genesis 2.17, you will certainly die. And so it did back then, and so it still does today. Listen, sin always leads to death. Physical death is why we all die now, and ultimately spiritual death. Listen, it leads to spiritual death, and even now, if you continue to dabble in sin long enough, that sin may lead you even to an untimely physical death. Spiritual death, what is that? We're familiar with the physical side of death where our bodies die, but our spirits, our soul continues to live. Spiritual death is concerned with that. Spiritual death is separation from God. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Physically, they were banished from the Garden of Eden. Their relationship with God was broken. And so now that that's why we had to, God had to incorporate the whole Old Testament sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And then we come to the New Testament where God now makes a way for us to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The veil's been torn so that spiritually we can at least have a relationship with him. So spiritual death is separation from God and eternal death is separation from God forever. This is why we need a Savior, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from the consequences of sin, which is death. So know this, sin sin never gives life. Sin will never give you life. It may give you happiness for a moment, but it will never give you ultimate happiness. It will never give you ultimate satisfaction. Listen, sin only ends in death. Sin is destructive from beginning to end. And so if you do nothing about sin, it will only get worse and worse and worse and ultimately end in death. And so please mark it down, know this. James wants us to discern this, that unchecked sin in our lives, unconfessed sin in our lives, unforgiven sin always ends in death. Oh, sin promises you something. Sin promises you a blessing, but in the end it only delivers death. And so immediately we see a vivid contrast here that James is drawing for us from Death here in verse 15 to what he wrote about and said in verse 12 about the crown of life. Remember what James said in verse 12? Look at it with me. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. But here in verse 15, James says, in contrast, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And so instead of receiving this blessing of the crown of life, 
Our desires are now conceiving and giving birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so we immediately see here, James has drawn this out for us, that every trial in our life, it offers one of two paths for us to choose. You see this visualized in your notes and on the screen. One path leads to the crown of life. The other path leads to death. Now, as we have already learned through the first chapter here, James, God uses trials to test the sincerity or the genuineness of our faith in God. And if those trials are met by steadfastness on our part, they make us spiritually mature. We are blessed, but we are also blessed with the crown of life. But James is also reminding us that with those trials comes temptation. And if temptation is met with our sinful desires, it's not halted, it leads to sin and death. And so immediately, what this is telling us is that my choices matter in the trials of life. Your choice, my choice. They matter in the trials of life. The choices I make in a trial can either mature me or destroy me based on what I choose. And so James is urging us as this loving pastor to these Jewish believers who are suffering at persecution. They're in the trials of life. They're in the heat. And James comes to them. He's writing to them as a loving pastor who is concerned for their spiritual well-being just as he is by application to us today. And James is saying, listen, choose here. Please choose to remain steadfast in the trials of life and learn to discern the temptations that come with them so that you may receive this crown of life and not death. He says, don't blame God for your temptation and sin. He says, listen, instead recognize its, its source and its force and its course and remain steadfast in your faith in God. And remember, Jesus is the source of victory over temptation and sin. Jesus is the course of life which triumphs over temptation and sin. This is why Paul triumphantly declared in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty and power of the gospel. Listen, it breaks the power of sin in our life and it halts the course of temptation. And so even now this morning, if you are in the grip of temptation, take take the living next step, the life-giving step of admitting that you are to blame and no one else. And then come to God. Run to the cross and ask God to forgive you and cleanse you of your sin. Ask him to rescue you from your sin. Listen, God is the one who saves us and redeems us through the work of Jesus Christ. So James, although he does not tell us here how to necessarily resist temptation, his concern is that we recognize temptation. We learn to discern temptation for what it is. Let me leave you with a ready defense against temptation. Now, I'm not going to go through these and explain them. They're there in your notes, and what I encourage you to do is to take this home 
open up your Bibles or open it up on your, your device, your phone, or whatever the case may be, and read these scriptures. And remember that God filters temptations for you. He will not allow you to go through a temptation that you cannot bear through the power of the Holy Spirit. Depend on the power of God's Spirit. Avoid the danger zones in your life and confess sin quickly and receive forgiveness freely and then satisfy your soul with Jesus Christ. Peter talks about taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to do that more. I think one of the reasons why we succumb to temptation to satisfy our desires, our sinful desires, is because we are not being satisfied with Jesus Christ. We are not tasting the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ as revealed in his word. Taste and see that Jesus is everything. That is the antithesis of succumbing and thinking that temptation is going to satisfy you. With your heads bowed, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the honesty and the clarity of James here in these verses. Thank you for how he anticipates the struggles of people who are facing the trials of life. And thank you for how he teaches us about the reality of temptations, along with the consequences of giving in to them. And so, Lord, help us never to blame you for what starts with the desires of our own hearts. Help us to resist temptation by the power of your spirit with the support of your people. Forgive us for our sins, Lord, and give us the grace to remain steadfast in the faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.